And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So this is a milestone episode for several reasons. First of all, it's the 150th episode. So we are halfway to 200 if you start at 100. We are three quarters of the way to 200 if you start at zero. Uh, A nice round number. People like to celebrate the 50s. And I am jumping on that bandwagon. I'm very proud of this show. And I'm also proud of somebody else. um, Someone who without whom this show would not have continued. And that is producer Sarah. This marks her 100th episode of not only putting up with me, but for helping me craft the most important endeavor in my life. And that is Fascinating Nouns. I owe her an incredible debt of gratitude. And she does a remarkable job. Absolutely incredible. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you, Producer Sarah, for all of your hard work. So today's episode is going to be on the haunted history of Halloween. I'm very excited about this. Halloween is one of my favorite holidays. Uh, and it it's, turns out it's an extraordinarily complex and very uh, regionalized and and the Halloween we know today is is all basically a Frankenstein's monster if you'll pardon the 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 pun of all these different belief systems from around the world that are all kind of pieced together into this really fun holiday I'm I'm very excited to pull this apart with with Lisa Morton so when you're done listening to this episode check out the Patreon feed for the show patreon.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn where you can find all of our bonus episodes we're going to do one on the Dia de los Muertos celebration which is great it is it's similar but different to halloween happens around the same time Uh, death is a theme it's kind of the south of the equator version of of halloween Uh, but much like but extraordinarily different it's its own unique thing and it is just incredible possibly a close second to halloween is my favorite holiday uh it's it's great stuff check it out patreon.com backslash daniel j glenn but let's get into halloween the haunted history of halloween author Lisa Morton, uh, author of the great book, A Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's funny because Halloween is such an interesting holiday because the current state of Halloween is such an amalgamation of so many different customs and it's like the evolution of so many different things that I think it's actually one of the few holidays that's very difficult to really trace the origin of like you kind of have to trace the individual like remnants now into their individual origin so i think that's we're going to try to do that if if that's possible sure halloween's kind of right up your alley because you're also uh like a horror writer and and you've done lots of things in the space you just came out with a great book about ghost stories with Leslie Klinger, who's known for his work with with um Sherlock Holmes and uh and HP Lovecraft uh, so how did you kind of get into, how did Halloween become your thing? Um, it was almost by accident. Um, I had actually done a film book um, with a company, and uh, 
they wrote me and said, hey, would you like to do another book with us? And so I was kind of thinking, sure. And I looked at their current catalog, and they had just put out a book called The Christmas Encyclopedia. And I thought, well, hey, nobody's ever done a Halloween encyclopedia. So I proposed that to them, and they said yes. And um, that turned into such a gigantic job um, involving years of research, and this was before everything was online, so (laughs) dozens of trips to libraries, and um, I just um, gathered such a gigantic amount of information for that book that it was easy to roll it over into other books. Um, I mean, obviously, I've always loved the holiday, but um, I never intended to become any sort of expert in it. I don't know if this is correct, but were you a model maker on the first Star Trek movie? I was. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I was very young. Um, I I wasn't even a legal adult yet, I think. And um, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a, an amazing experience. I didn't work on it very long, and it was really just um, like a, a couple of weekends more than anything else. But it was fun. I was right in there with you know, the one of the great model makers of all time, Greg Jean, I worked for him and, and Bob Short and Nick Selden and it was an amazing crew, Bill George um Bill George and we um worked on the V'ger part of it, the big, you know, the alien ship that the uh, that the Enterprise takes that journey through. We were building the interior of it. Wow. Were you did you go to school for model making? I mean it's such a it's such a strange shift. It is very strange. I did not. Um, like I said, I, I fell into that again almost by accident. I used to see Greg at a lot of um, science fiction conventions that I would go to as a kid, and, and we would just chat. And um, he mentioned one time, if you ever want to come to work for me, um, I was at the time I was a, a college student in San Diego, and he said, if you want to come up and go to work for me, I'll put you to work on something. And wow. so I... <laughs> Uh, was majoring in film at San Diego State University, and I did not like the way that was going. And um, so I decided, you know, I would rather be working in the movie industry than learning about it from these these people who didn't who would admit to me they had never done it right um <laughs> and so i did i finally did contact greg and he said sure come on up and that was it that's amazing i mean it's such a fun thing to have because i mean you know it's an iconic movie uh, an iconic series and to make the models i mean that's kind of like that era you know that and star wars were really you know kind of known for making the models that kind of inspired so many people to love spaceships and everything like that's i mean i don't know it's just that's a really cool thing to have right on your you know on your resume yeah it was fun i mean i'm i'm by no means a great model maker (laughs) i should clarify that the last movie i worked on as as a model maker and i worked on that one for a long time was the abyss oh wow that's another good one yeah, um, that one I worked on, I think, longer than any movie I've ever written, even. Um, I was on that forever and ever and ever, and that was an interesting experience, too. But after that, um, you know, that was the first movie that employed a lot of CGI. Right. And um, I remember while I was working on that movie, um, I had friends who were in the editing department, which was like on the floor above where we, where we were making the models, and one of them waved me into his editing booth one day, and he said, you got to look at this. And he showed me the first CGI test had just come through, wow. and he had just cut it into some of the footage. And it was one of those things that you just looked at and just, you knew, well, 
I, this is the end of model making. Right, right. <laughs> um, a lot of the guys who came out of the abyss went on to other things, um, art direction and prop making, that kind of thing. And I went into screenwriting for the most part after that. Right, because you wrote, I mean, you've written several things that have been produced in, in Hollywood. I mean, that's you have quite a career there as well. Yeah, that's how I used to make most of my living, but um, it wasn't always the happiest job for me. Um, you end up with these movies that bear virtually no resemblance to anything that you wrote, and yet your name is plastered all over them. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. With little say in how they turn out, too, which is amazing. People are actually kind of snickering when you mention some of these movies. And um, at some point, I just kind of realized, you know, I, I want my name on stuff I actually can recognize and can have a little bit of pride in. So that was when I really turned mainly to prose writing. <laughs> right. And you've won awards in that as well for, for some of your work, for your, uh, I think, a, a Bram Stoker Award for uh, in 2010, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, that I think prose writing is what I'm actually good at, as compared to model making and even the screenwriting. So it was just kind of a matter of bumbling my way through these other things to to find the right slot for me. Right. Well, and and your you know your your background, your history, uh, your knowledge of the history of Halloween helps with a lot of the the horror writing, I imagine. Although, you know, as I was reading, as I was reading your book, uh, it, it's it's funny how like. You know, we kind of have turned it into this extraordinarily spooky holiday horror movies people love to watch. But in truth, it's not really the, – the origins aren't really in that so much. That was kind of an evolution, I think. But let's let's go back. Let's try to, to find the strings here because what I'd like to do, if we could, is kind of find out where these components kind of came into it. And I believe that they're all separate. But ghosts, the dead coming back, witches, the devil, bats, spiders, scarecrows, pumpkins, jack-o'-lanterns, black cats, the colors, black and orange. And you kind of cover all this stuff. And they all come – or trick-or-treating, I should mention as well. They all come from extraordinarily different places. But let's see if we can't have all the threads, see where they, they converge. Although I think it might – it's a tall order, but let's see what we can do. Uh, all right. So let's go back um, to as far back as we can imagine. Where did your research kind of land when it comes to the origins of Halloween? Well, it's interesting. There's kind of a debate among people who are sort of the scholars of Halloween as to whether it owes more of its character to the Celtic holiday of Samhain or the Catholic holiday of All Saints Day. And I fall into the Samhain category. Um, I think there is no question that the holiday owes much of that sort of macabre character to Samhain. And Samhain was something that the ancient Celts celebrated 2,000 years ago. It was their New Year's festival. The name actually translates literally to Summer's End. So it was the time when they brought their livestock in from the fields and when they stocked up um, their supplies for the rough winter that was ahead and the days were getting shorter and the nights getting longer and colder. And so it, it was their New Year's uh, celebration. And so it was the time that they thought the veil between worlds was at its thinnest. And um, they believed in evil fairies called the She, and they thought the She could cross over on that night and wreak all kinds of havoc in their world. And um, uh, certain humans could cross into the, the She's other world as well. And 
time moved very differently there and you would get trapped there and think that you had only spent like a few days and then you would come back to our world and discover a year had passed and um and the uh, the she could be very malevolent so i think that's kind of where we get the macabre association with halloween um the celts also seem to enjoy telling spooky stories about the she because the literature that we have and we don't have a lot of actual written history of the Celts because they didn't believe in writing it down. What we have are their um, legends and their stories that were transcribed by um, the later Catholic missionaries. And those include a lot of really spooky um, stories about Samhain, about there's a great one about an adventurer called Nera who gets assigned by the king to go out to where a corpse has been hung and he's been challenged with putting a noose um, around the foot of this corpse, and no one else has been able to do this. They've all fled in terror. And he finally manages to do it, and when he does, the corpse comes to life and begins speaking to him. And um, So there were a lot of really strange and interesting spooky stories. And then uh, when the Catholics came along to convert the Celts, um, they had a doctrine of not just stamping out existing holidays but co-opting them. And so they moved the date of their saint celebration, which originally was May 13th. They moved it to November 1st um, to try and co-opt that Celtic holiday. And it was not entirely successful. So uh, sometime in the 11th century, they added a second celebration of All Souls Day on November 2nd. And, um, yeah, that is what finally kind of turned it all in their direction right well you know it's it's funny because like i you say that there's a debate going on it seems like i don't know what the debate would be because clearly clearly the roots are in Samhain, and that was centuries before before uh, you know people came and came to the to the celtic regions in ireland and scotland to kind of learn about the the cultures there so it seems like that would be without question the, the the beginnings of this All Saints Day was, in, if anything, a reaction to that, right? Uh, that's what I think. Although there is an argument to be made that, uh, especially All Souls Day, which was um, people wanted All Souls Day um, partly also. I mean, part of it was to continue co-opting Salon, but also because All Saints Day celebrated the dead saints, and people said, "Well, I want to celebrate my own dead loved ones." Mm. So they added All Souls Day, and the idea was that you would pray for the souls of your loved ones who might be still stuck in purgatory, who weren't able to move on. And so the holiday took on kind of a slightly macabre edge with that, too. Um, there were these you know, beliefs that your loved ones were trapped in this place and that sometimes um, the souls would come up and you would offer them um, foods or, or drink that they had loved on that day and you would pray for them. And there was even a little bit of a costumed begging ritual where beggars would go from house to house and offer prayers for their loved ones in exchange for food and little cakes. Um, they were known as soul cakes and the whole tradition became known as soul caking. And um, so that definitely has a little bit of a macabre edge, but I agree totally that it really owes it to Salad. Well, and it's a nice little, you know, that's a nice little foreshadowing of the origins of trick-or-treating as well. Nicely done. Way to weave that in there. 
because you know that's there's so many different traditions that kind of come out of this. But I want to talk about Samhain just for a little bit because and I love the idea that the veil is the thinnest. And so this is, I imagine that this is where we kind of get the ghostly association with Halloween, right? Absolutely, yeah. And there was this, you know, and I read this this great quote someplace, and they said that, uh, you know, this when you separate the spirit from the body, you're left with two things: a corpse and a ghost. And right. those are those are really the two. You know, you have the, a person. But then you have these two scary things that come out of that when that person dies, right? And so you have these three three things, dying, corpse, ghost, all of which we have negative connotations with. And it's kind of funny, like, that really feels like the origin of those three things when it comes to Halloween. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Ish? Yeah, sure. Uh, so let's talk about, let's talk about uh, witches. How did witches and the devil kind of become a part of this tradition as well? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting story. Um it actually was a political expediency in the 16th century. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was interesting that I I was curious about that exact question, and I really dug into the history of that. And um, when you do that, you find no associations of witches and Halloween or uh, All Hallows Eve or All Saints Day or whatever before the 16th century. And I thought, well, that's strange. And then I found out that the first person who really associated these two things together was King James of Scotland, who later became King James of, uh, of England. But he was um, extremely dedicated to witch hunting. He wrote an entire book called Demonology, which became sort of one of the core texts of that whole time. And he um, was looking for ways to separate himself from the Catholic Church, and so were all of the um, priests or uh, Church of England and so forth, all the uh, other different nonconformists who worked for him. And so uh, they kind of saw a way to kill two birds with one stone, no pun intended, by having uh, allying witches with this Catholic holiday. Um, and that is the first time, some of the witch trials that occurred under King James, the first time you see those two things associated. Wow. That is, I mean, that's pretty incredible. And, and witches get their power by essentially making a pact with the devil, right? Uh, in Under the King James kind of beliefs, yes. Um, I mean, obviously that has absolutely nothing to do with contemporary Wiccan beliefs. But yeah, that was one of the ideas that, that James and the witch hunters were pushing. Well, yeah, no, it, it, but it's just that's like where the connection comes in. Now it's kind of the devil has kind of been boiled down to red horns, you know, and, and a tail maybe. Right. But, but then it was, you know, serious business. People really had a fear of witchcraft and, and the devil being the, you know, the giver of those types of abilities. Uh, along with along with two a couple other things the other icon, Halloween iconography which is the broom you know or, or witches specifically but the broom you know a black cat the familiar um, you know the tall pointy hat and, and a broom and, and a cauldron I think I think in your book you talk about how these are really uh, the three things that kind of defined femininity and I guess not not really femininity but but women's roles at the time. And they were all associated with witches. They'd kind of been commandeered by the, the Catholic Church in order to kind of vilify um, certain people pretty easily and quickly, as you mentioned. Yeah, and, you know, especially illustrated, uh, they were especially, especially associated with 
elderly women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the cat alongside her, the the broom that she's using to sweep her her home with, and um, because elderly women were um, kind of on the fringes quite often of society, and they were kind of the easiest ones to pick on in the um, the the witch trials. And you know, many of the witch trials were. Um, economically um, associated in terms of not only did these witch hunters and judges and so forth come into a town and give a boom to the local economy with the inns and all that, but they also could claim the property of the people who were found guilty. So there was a lot of um, that directed towards these elderly women because quite often they had no one who would stand up for them. And so it was easy to direct these charges at them and then grab whatever property they had. It's just crazy the long-term effects of all this. You know, I mean, like that that went on for a long period of time. It did, yeah. And um, and there were an estimated 40,000 people at least who died um, during those persecutions. It was It was a pretty awful time of history. Well, and you you mentioned one other thing that that I didn't know, but the the North Berwick witch trials kind of firmly associated Halloween with all that stuff. What was the significance of those particular trials? Well, that again, that was under James. Like it's like the culmination of his 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 run against them. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, it was a I think it was a political expediency for him. It was a way to hey, we can we can knock a Catholic holiday and witches at the same time. Right, right. Well, you know, it's funny because All Saints Day, you know, it, we it, we do have to give it a little bit of time because it is this interesting parallel. And I, this is like one of the things that was kind of eye opening, as I mentioned, growing up religious, and then realizing like how many of the holidays. Are, are these real kind of taking these pagan holidays and combining them with Christian holidays to, to make everything basically okay. And no one really questions it. And I've done, you know, I did a whole thing on, on voodoo and, and a whole, you know, different other sort of religious belief systems. And this is extraordinarily common. You know, this happens right. all the time. I mean, it's not right. it's not unusual. But when you realize, you know, when you talk to someone and you say, well, well, what does a what does a pine tree and Santa Claus have to do with the birth of Jesus? Right. Like what, what do right. what do bunnies and eggs have to do with Easter and the resurrection right. of Jesus? Like like it doesn't make any sense. And it's it's just interesting to see how these kind of how you take two completely different things. I mean, it's kind of like a Reese's peanut butter cup, right? You have like chocolate and peanut butter that are completely different and you combine them. And now people love them, and they're totally, but they're totally different and separate from what their original intention was. And you know, All Saints Day falls into this category because, as you mentioned, it was an attempt to kind of Catholicify or Christianification of a pagan a ritual. But what I, I love about it is that, well, first of all, one interesting thing in your book that, that I thought was fascinating is that Louisiana is the only state in the U.S. where All Saints Day is a legal holiday. Yeah. How and why? That's so bizarre. It is bizarre. Um, I am not entirely sure I remember where that came about. Okay. But, um, <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, just just one of those weird cultural things. Um, I mean, obviously, I think it should be a holiday in every state. <laughs> sure, yeah. But, yeah, and it is specifically All Saints Day. 
which I think has to do with the heavy amount of French culture that was around New Orleans, especially, and around Louisiana, because All Saints Day is a really big deal in France. Um, and this is a completely separate celebration from Halloween, because All Saints Day is celebrated specifically on November 1st, right. whereas Halloween is the eve of the um, All Saints Day. And All Saints Day was kind of somber, and very sober. The idea was that you went to the uh, cemeteries and you decorated and cleaned the headstones of your deceased loved ones. And you might go home and set out one of their favorite meals and maybe the spirit would come down and enjoy a little bit of that with you and then go back. And um, so it was, like I said, a very separate holiday from um Halloween. And in fact, now what's interesting is that in many parts of Europe, they celebrate both. Hmm. So they do the big wild um, party and the trick-or-treating and so forth on the 31st, and then the the next day they are going to the cemeteries. Wow. I mean, it's really interesting how, I mean, it's a total, yeah, I mean, because as you mentioned, it was in May, and they've moved it. So it was its own holiday in in the religious system before, and it was kind of moved um, to be closer and kind of bring in and this this other holiday before we you know I, i'm jumping around here because there's one other thing i want to mention before we move away from Samhain completely another amazing fact from your book is that Samhain was kind of you you mentioned this briefly that it was kind of like um a celebration abundance but you also mentioned that it was kind of like tax day for the celts in that yeah, they spent yeah. three days feasting and the repayment of debts that's when all the trials happened um so tell me about the, how it relates to taxes and, and um, your hearth fires. Well, uh, that all had to do with it being the end of the year for them. Um, so it was um, it was like our April 15th. It was the end of the year when all of these things would be taken care of. And um, so they would do the... Um, the tax paying, the debt paying, and the hearth fire thing was really interesting because they would actually extinguish every fire um, in Ireland, and then the uh, Druid priests would reignite the fires from special embers. So it was a, a that was a nice kind of ritualized thing that they would do just to, to just to start the new year off. But you had a did you have to pay for each little ember to start your own fire, right? That was like the tax part. Something correct? like that, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> that's, that's pretty interesting. I love that they kind of like wiped the financial calendar um, during a three-day celebration. I mean, it's kind of interesting. People, I think people like to pay their taxes more if you got to you know, party for three days while, while you did really? it. Really? Yeah. Uh, so, so that was the Druids that was in Ireland. And so let's get to All Saints Day. Uh, you mentioned in the 7th century that that's when St. Patrick kind of brought Catholicism to Ireland. And the church was kind of repurposing Celtic temples. Uh, so this is kind of where, I guess, I would imagine that the idea of bringing All Saints Day um, in kind of came about. But now talk about its connection to the Roman day of, uh, of the dead, Lemuria. Um, yeah, Lemuria was uh, one of several Roman holidays that they um, they would remember their dead and and they had a couple and some of them were kind of fearful and some of them involved these these weird rituals of getting the dead out of your house by dropping this trail of beans that they would follow and um, the um, original date of All Saints Day was May thirteenth and that was the middle. Um, day of, and I get these two mixed up, there's Lemuria and there's Feralia, which were both kind of 
um, around the spirits of the dead. And um, so they obviously had originally set up that day to co-opt the old Roman holiday, and that apparently was successful. But So by the time they were trying to Christianize the Celts, um, it made it easy to move that celebration from May 13th to um, November 1st. Right. Well, and, and you mentioned, you know, so you mentioned that this particular holiday was, was for remembering the dead. Uh, you make this really interesting. There's like this strange convergence of two extraordinary events that I think also in another way kind of spin this time of the year down the macabre path. And that's the invention of the printing press. Uh, which I did a whole episode on the printing press and its influence. Uh, I mean, arguably one of the greatest inventions in humankind, um, I would imagine. And then how the, the plague that swept through Europe and and how the Grim Reaper and, and Dance Macabre images kind of became, you know, almost a, a way of, of dealing using gallows humor to kind of deal with the tragedy that was befalling Europe. So how did that kind of combine with, with All Saints Day? Yeah, it's um, the the... Plague and the dance macabre and so forth um, brought about the the use of skeleton symbolism and um, skeletons in art and these sort of macabre thing themes in art and and the plagues were so um, ubiquitous for um, many many years around Europe that it just kind of infiltrated a lot of different parts of culture and um, it ends up becoming associated with. All Saints Day um, as a sort of death thing, um, especially All Souls Day, though, we should say, because All Souls Day is the one that's a little bit definitely the more macabre of the two Catholic holidays. Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, I think it aligns perfectly with All Souls Day, and so it becomes a part of that. And, you know, and we still have all of that skeleton imagery forth now. Yeah, I think, you know, it's my fault. I'm being confusing with the way I'm describing that. Because when I say All Saints Day, because that's like the holiday that currently exists. Um, right, And, and right. so that's more – All Souls Day was – because, you know, because even – and uh, you know, we'll, hopefully we'll get to a bonus episode on the Dios de los Muertos, which has also a lot of very similar themes um, and is at the same time of year. But you have this very um, – you know, th- th- there's like a pro- – Aggression, as you mentioned, there's like All Saints Day, which is the Dead Saints, and then All Souls, which is you know the, the um, people kind of honoring their loved ones that have passed. You know, it's kind of like Veterans Day and Memorial Day in a lot of ways. You know, right, um, right. In some ways, the distinction. So I, I may be using those interchangeably, and they're not exactly that way. So I apologize for for the confusion there. Um, but you know, what's kind of cool the the in the history of Halloween, I think that there's another extraordinarily important part uh, here, and that is. You have all of these kind of similar systems going on across Europe, and they're all kind of changing based on you know we didn't really go into Guy Fawkes Day, which you bring up in the book, uh, which is, which is a whole a whole another thing that I thought was interesting. It kind of happens around the same time, but you have all these immigrants kind of coming here from you know to America, and and at that point is kind of where it seems like in the United States in America with with all the with immigrants coming in all of their cultures kind of being mixed together that's kind of where you really start mixing the brew that becomes modern day halloween uh, you know, because you have the, the Irish, the, the, a lot of people from Haiti, Germans, the English, and the Dutch. You know, all had very similar but different customs. But the one commonality is is that it's kind of a night for chaos and mischief. And how? Yeah. So how does yeah. that kind of translate into early early American history? 
Well, it um, there really is not a celebration of Halloween in this country before about the 1840s. Um, and that is when a massive famine swept through Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, people were immigrating out of Ireland, and a lot of them came to the U.S., and they brought the Halloween customs with them. Um, and most of the customs at that point consisted of uh, fortune-telling and prank-playing. And so um, one of the things that you see happening in the mid-19th century is um, new printing technologies come along, and they enable the production of mass um, magazines. And magazines become huge in the mid-19th century, and you have this sort of um, luxury middle class of women who are sitting at home now, and they're reading these magazines, and they love to read stories about sort of quaint traditions. And Halloween fits in perfectly with that. So suddenly around the 1860s, 1870s, you start to see a lot of Halloween stories pop up in these magazines. And these middle class matrons are reading these stories and going, well, that sounds like a fun party to throw. So they start throwing these parties, and then the kids start picking up on the pranking traditions. And the the pranking is what really spreads. And by the early 20th century, pranking is all over the United States on Halloween night. And it's becoming... um, more and more urbanized it moves it started in sort of rural areas and it they were kind of innocent pranks in the rural areas the kids were just disassembling they would one of their favorite things was they would disassemble a farmer's gate and then reassemble the gate in some bizarre place like on top of the roof of the house <laughs> yeah. and this was this was so common that the the holiday actually was called gate night in a lot of places oh wow um yeah, and I mean, I actually have a few vintage postcards from that time that show it as gate night. And uh, by the 1920s and 30s, though, as the country is becoming more urbanized, these pranks are moving into the cities. And when they move into the cities, they're becoming very destructive. Um, these kids are out there busting lighting fixtures and glass windows and setting fires and um, stringing wires to trip pedestrians and um, it becomes so destructive that a lot of cities start considering banning the holiday. And um, this is where trick-or-treat starts to come in, because fortunately a few cities were smart enough to say, you know what, we might be more successful trying to buy them off. <laughs> yeah. Which was totally, totally correct. So they set up these committees that would work with homeowners to institute these big-scale parties. And in the first uh, few years, they called them house-to-house parties. And this was the big, uh, this was during the height of the Great, Depre- Great Depression, so a lot of people did not have much money to spare on putting out parties. So they would work together within a neighborhood, and each house would contribute something different to the party. So the first house uh, the kids would go to, they'd give them little costumes, which might be as simple as just a sheet so they could be ghosts. Um, And the next house would give them maybe some treats. And then the next house would have the basement set up as a little haunted maze that the kids would have to work through. Um, So this way of buying off these destructive pranksters became trick-or-treat. And the the phrase and so forth was added in the late 30s. And by about the late 30s is when we start to see this as a custom that has um, spread throughout a lot of the United States. 
Well, it's it's really interesting because I mentioned, you know, you mentioned soul caking is kind of, you know, where you go house to house with these soul cakes. It, you know, it's kind of funny that like that kind of dies out and then as a way to kind of get kids to stop pranking. I mean, it's weird to think that pranking was such a big deal and it was so destructive that we had to find a way to occupy children um, to stop them from doing this. I mean, it's kind of like April Fool's Day run amok, you know. I mean, it was it sounded pretty crazy. Yeah, it was yeah, it was really crazy. Yeah. Um I have some interesting um pamphlets that were put out by some of the cities wow. that actually show statistics regarding the amount of destruction that was going on with these things and it was pretty intense. And then um if you I've actually managed in a couple of cases to get several years worth of these pamphlets from the same city. And the later years would include statistics showing how much the amount of pranking and vandalism had dropped wow. because they had instituted these parties. And it was really significant. It was it was pretty amazing. Um and um yeah, so it it absolutely worked and, and I do want to say that I think there's kind of a a common misconception that there is a direct line between Halloween and, I mean, between trick-or-treat and uh, soul-caking, some of those earlier traditions. There really is no direct line between them. Um, they just both happen to be cases of people like to dress up at holidays. Well, it's just interesting that it was the same holiday. You know, like like yeah, I'm not saying exactly. it was it was a tradition carried on and then reinstituted, but it's just it's just interesting how the cycle kind of repeats itself. You know, that dies out yeah. and then we use it later on and it becomes a huge part of the holiday. Um but as you mentioned, it is kind of unrelated. But it's just interesting, you know, it's kinda of like convergent evolution. Like these two things kind of came up oh, at the same time, you know, independent of each other really. So, you know, as it in World War II obviously changes the history of anything. Anything you talk about, at least in the United States especially, when we start talking about things that happened here. And what was interesting here is World War II kind of changed the way the post-World War II era kind of changed how people trick-or-treated. You know, like costumes became very affordable. And this was a, a way for, you know, kids to get candy. The candy business, you know, got, got involved. They saw that they could make a ton of money. Uh, on on trick or treating as well. This is a really interesting time. Uh, it's also you also mentioned in the book that the last week of October became National Donut Week, which is just interesting, <laughs> unrelated but extraordinarily weird that they would make it right around Halloween. Uh, was that like an effort for the donut the big for Big Donut to kind of horn in on on Big Candy's territory? Well, donuts actually were a traditional Halloween food. Um, they were one of the main foods that people would serve at their Halloween parties in the early 20th century. So hmm. I'm sure that that was, had something to do with the reason those dates were chosen. Related somehow. Huh? Uh, yeah. You, you know, it's, it's funny. So when you talk about Big Candy, Mars, Inc., you know, they had huge campaigns on radio, TV, newspapers, comics, you know, a lot of the TV shows and radio shows of the day kind of started doing this. And it feels like it was a way to get kids off of pranking. But then very quickly, people saw how much money they could make because kids loved this idea. Uh, so walk me through kind of like the post-World War II, like how costumes kind of became a major part of all this and, and how um, it became such a big business. Yeah, well, a lot of it, um, obviously, part of um, the history has to do with the fact that during World War II, there were things like sugar rationing. Oh, right, yeah. And 
so it was not easy to just pass out all kinds of treats to kids on Halloween night. So trick-or-treat kind of got put on hold during the war years. But then the war ends. Um, sugar is readily available again. Trick-or-treat, it's not really until after World War II that it becomes huge. It was around before that, but it was even then it was kind of regionalized. Um, after World War II, it is absolutely spread across the entire U.S. It becomes huge at that point. And um, you can understand that a lot of mothers would have been like, I don't want to have to sit here and make treats all night long and take care of these kids' candies and uh, costumes and all, do all of this. So um, along come the costume companies, which say, hey, guess what? We'll, we'll just pre-make costumes for your kids so you don't have to worry about that. And then the candy companies come in and say, and hey, we'll we'll come up with the treats so you don't have to sit there and make the popcorn balls or the caramel apples right. all night. Um, and then one of the other interesting things that spreads trick-or-treat across the country about the uh, mid-50s is um, television comes in, and trick-or-treat becomes huge on old sitcoms. Um, I think that possibly the first mention of it on television was on the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you actually, you can see this, you can find this episode on YouTube, and if you watch it, you look at it and you go, wow, that, seriously, that's trick-or-treat? I mean, it looks very different. The kids show up in these sort of funky-looking homemade costume things that have a couple of touches of well, okay, they probably bought that part of it, mm -hmm. but they didn't have like a whole costume yet to buy, and um, the whole thing, I think they're trick-or-treating in the daylight, and it, the whole thing is just somewhat different from what we're used to now. So that's kind of all part of the evolution, and it's fun that you actually now can watch some of that. Right. Well, you know, it, you, it's an interesting distinction, a couple of things. First of all, you know, World War II spawned the baby boom generation. So you have all these kids who, you know, you have all these parents who need to do something with all these kids. And, and as they're watching television, which is coming up at the exact same time, you know, it's spreading the word. What kid doesn't want to dress up and go out and get candy from strangers all night? Like, that's, it's like perfectly made for children. You know, it's great. Uh, so that, you know, that's kind of one of the key things here. But, uh, you know, also, which I thought was interesting, is UNICEF, right around 1954, they kind of become the key to making this acceptable because they're, they're they're the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, and they started going door to door, kind of asking for donations for that. And and in some ways, you know, this it became like almost un-American not to do this. And this, in some ways, made going door to door on Halloween much more acceptable because I imagine there must have been there had to be a cultural shift for people to realize that someone knocking on their door late at night on Halloween was acceptable. People had to, like, accept that as custom, you know? Yeah, I think UNICEF probably did somewhat legitimatize it. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's for a good cause, and you're talking about charity. And this, you know, again, probably not a direct line, but there was lots of the, you know, begging for donations or begging for food or, or whatever you called it in, in you know, in the pre-Halloween era that it's just another interesting connection, you know, to to UNICEF and and this whole idea right around Halloween, uh, late harvest time that you that you do all this stuff. Uh, one other thing we have to talk about because this is quintessential, and and it also ties directly into trick or treating, which is the jack o' lantern. You know, um, that's uh -huh. like the right now. I imagine, um, or at least 
in my, you know, I've been out of trick-or-treating. I've been out of the trick-or-treating game for a while, Lisa. But I remember the, you know, that, that mass-produced plastic jack-o'-lantern as being the thing you went around and collected treats in. But we have to talk about the history of the jack-o'-lantern because this is such a symbol of Halloween. How did this kind of come about? Well, the, um, the Irish used to carve turnips. Um, pumpkins are native to the New World, so they didn't have pumpkins. But on Halloween night, they would carve, they had these big turnips, and they would carve these um, sort of evil-looking faces into the turnips. And then they would light these turnips with a candle from inside. And they would post these turnips in places that people didn't expect to come across them. So the traveler who is making his way down the dark country road on Halloween night turns a corner and there's this evil glowing face. Um, or the farmer who goes out into his cabbage patch happens to see this evil glowing face and gets a little fright and then probably laughs. Mm-hmm. And so the um, Irish bring that custom with them when they come over here. And um, actually, kids were already carving pumpkins into jack-o'-lanterns before the Irish arrived. We have some early 19th century poems that talk about that, but they were not associated with Halloween. So it's not until the Irish get here that we start to see this carving of jack-o'-lanterns as being associated with Halloween. And um, what's funny is that even then, um, you start to see the jack-o'-lanterns coming into the holiday in the late 19th century, but If you look at, um, for example, the first Halloween party guide was published in 1897, and it's called Halloween, How to Celebrate It. And if you open that book up and look at the section on jack-o'-lanterns, the author is suggesting that you carve things like apples and cucumbers Mm. into jack-o'-lanterns. Oh, that's hard. Um, That would be amazing if you could see an apple peeled, you know, cored out and turned into a jack-o'-lantern. That's pretty cool, actually. It is cool. I have absolutely no idea how that would be possible, no. but this is what is suggested in the early decorating guides for the holiday, and you don't really get that being shifted completely to the pumpkin until, like, about the 1910s or 20s. Wow. I mean, and it's so great because, you know, you've got Ichabod Crane and, and the Headless Horseman. You know, that's famously sure. has, has a jack o right. in it. One of the kind of – there's two really cool connections you make. I love the paranormal, and you make two great connections. The first one – is that like UFOs, you talk about how the origin of jack-o'-lantern had to do with swamp gas. W- what's the connection there? Yeah. Well, the uh, the legend behind the jack-o'-lantern is that Jack was a legendary trickster, um, and he outwitted the devil three times, and um, so the devil couldn't take his soul, but finally the devil... Um, finally Jack dies, and he goes to, heaven won't let him in, he goes to hell, and the devil says, well, you tricked me three times, I don't want anything to do with you, but here, you can have an ember to light your way. So the devil throws him this hell ember, Jack puts it into a carved-out gourd, and uses that to light his way um, as he travels the world as a ghost. And um, there were a couple of different versions of the jack-o'-lantern, and the other one that is more commonly associated with the sort of swamp gas thing is known as Will-o'-the-Wisp. And Will-o'-the-Wisp and Jack-o'-lantern are close to being the same thing. Um, so the Will-o'-the-Wisp and uh, legend was that these, these little blobs of glowing light, which, by the way, form naturally when certain forms of um, decaying matter combine in a swamp, 
um, that these things would lead travelers late at night to their doom, that they would follow these lights and just march right into a swamp or quicksand or something. So that was um, part of the whole legend of Will-O-The-Wisp and Jack-O-Lantern. I mean, it's it's so great that it, I mean, it's such a cool tradition. Uh, it's just funny that it, like, how that kind of becomes involved with Halloween. When you talk about a holiday that deals with pumpkins. Are you talking about Punky Night? Is that the, the one in England? Uh, Punky Night was very regionalized. It was. It's only celebrated in, and I think it's still celebrated, by the way, it's only celebrated in one very specific region. Um, and in that one specific region, they use a very distinctive fruit to carve these things. And it's a it's got a long, complicated name. I'm trying to remember what it is, something like Mangelwurzer or something like that. It's a like a gigantic crop that is mainly used to feed livestock. Mm. But on this one night, they carve it into these faces. That's great. I mean, I love that there are so many different regional – I mean, you go into the book, there's lots of, you know, the different traditions, you know, for all the different uh, cultures. It's kind of amazing how similar but different everything is. Now, the one thing we have to talk about that this was totally brand new to me, and we touched on it earlier, but we didn't really go into it. How in the world did fortune-telling become a part of Halloween? I'd never heard that before. I think that is another case, um, another point that we can make in the case that it comes from Samhain. Um, The fortune-telling was somewhat macabre, and it was, again, an expression of the idea that the veil between worlds was at its thinnest on this night. And it became a popular party celebration um, in the, mainly in the 18th century, uh, with the Scots. The Scots loved to tell um, fortunes and love to play these fortune telling games and um, a lot of the games are really strange some of them are somewhat macabre I mean there were these things where you would go into a field and call up the name of the devil and he would appear to you and tell you um, who you were going to end up marrying most of these games were about finding out who you would end up marrying because that was such a, an important part of people's lives and um, most of the games are somewhat innocent. Um, putting nuts onto a hearth was one of the most popular ones. So you would line up a series of nuts at the fireplace, and as the um, heat increased, some of the nuts would pop. And so depending on which one popped, you would uh, you would name the nuts after specific people, and it's like, oh, Bob popped first, I'm going to marry Bob. And um, or if the nut burned before it popped, it would be like, oh, I don't, I definitely don't want to marry Dave over here. And um, yeah, so they had a lot of these interesting, fun um, party games. And the reason, one of the reasons we know so much about these party games is thanks to the poet Robert Burns, who in 1786 wrote a poem called Halloween, which is a fantastic, very long poem that actually records many of these traditions. Well, I mean, it's it, this was a kind of interesting part. It was curious to me that, that everyone was so into finding out who they were going to marry. Uh, I mean, you know, lots of these things. I mean, you, you talk about kaling, which is putting kale stalks over your door, which feels very much like a precursor to mistletoe, as I think it was like the first person who walks across is who you're going to marry. Um, you yeah. know, th- this is an interesting one where you cut an apple and you look in a mirror and you see the face of your beloved. This has, you know, the connection between that and Bloody Mary, which also feel like a very Halloween thing. Uh, they're they're pretty striking there as well. And then loogie bowls, which I thought were were right. very very strange. Can you explain those to me? 
Um, as much as anyone can. Okay. Uh, the the name in particular is kind of lost in antiquity. Nobody is quite sure. It's like they think it goes back to an ancient pagan god named Lug. Um, okay. But how that ends up coming about, we're not sure. But yeah, the 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 basic idea with the Lugi bulls is that you take um, usually it's three bulls, but I've read accounts of it where it was as many as nine. Wow. You fill each bowl with a different substance. So when you're doing it with three, you would usually fill one with water, one with ash, and one with something like um, clay, I think it was. And then you're blindfolded, and you walk up to the bowls, and whichever one you touch first indicates the sort of either the sort of person you're going to marry, or sometimes it would even be the sort of life you were going to have. So... Um, for example, there would usually be a bowl kept empty. If you touched that bowl, it meant you were going to remain a spinster and unmarried. If you touched the bowl of ash, it would mean that um, you would marry a widower or something like that. So there were, it was kind of arbitrary, but based on the item that was in the, the bowl. So like a sympathetic magic in a way. Right, yeah. And you will see these vintage postcards um, that show a blindfolded woman bending over a series of bowls. And if you ever see that, that is the loogie bowl. <laughs> that's, that's such an interesting custom. I had no idea there was such a connection to fortune-telling. Uh, so before we go, two things. I have to know, I think this might be one of the last questions that we answered from the beginning, but how did black and orange become the colors of Halloween? That's that's kind of a fun question because they were not always the colors of Halloween. Um, again, I have these, these early 20th century party guides, and these were put out by the professional um, decorating companies. Denison's was the big one. And if you look at the party guides from, like, the 1910s, you will see them saying the traditional colors of Halloween are yellow and brown. And so it kind of shifted over the early part of the 20th century um, and finally became orange and black. And I think it, it, it's just the idea of the orange of the jack-o'-lanterns because they had become so popular by about the 1920s or so. And the black of night and death and bats and cats. And um, so those ended up being the colors that they were able, I guess, to most merchandise they weren't taken by any other holiday i guess huh yeah right Uh, so one other thing i want to talk about because this is one of the great connections here is you know there's lots of urban myths that kind of surround halloween and one of the one is is that satanic cults are are around and they you know they take your animals and 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 they do weird rituals and stuff with them and the book you talk about how this kind of came about in the 70s because of cattle mutilations i did a whole episode on cattle mutilations this phenomenon is just fascinating to me, but it's interesting that that is what started the satanic cult and almost, you know in the satanic panic of the eighties. It's interesting that it started with that around Halloween. Yeah, and it's it's such an urban legend too. And I mean the the whole thing with black cats being used, being taken for sacrifice, and all that. I mean it's a really good idea to keep your cats indoors on Halloween anyway. Sure, <laughs> um, but there is just. These things just don't really have the documentary evidence to support that they happen on any sort of large scale. 
Um, I mean, the same thing with poison candies, uh, with razor blades and apples. They're all really essentially just urban legends. Right. I mean, it's just it's crazy where all this stuff kind of starts. And the one thing we didn't get to, but but really quickly, is that bats kind of became associated with Halloween because of Dracula, as did Transylvania. All this came up with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, so lots of strange things going on here. It's a, it's a crazy amalgamation. So this is, you know, it, we've tackled what is essentially, I'm going to argue, is the most difficult holiday question um, that mankind has ever known. But I think we kind of... You know, we I think we worked out all the strings that kind of have created modern day Halloween. Uh, we didn't do it all, but I think you do. I'm going to say you do it all. And the books you've written on Halloween, uh, where can people find you find your books? Are you on social media? Um, you can start with my website, which is easy. It's lisamorton.com, and from there you'll find links to my social media. And uh, the books are all available through most major uh, booksellers. Um, Amazon certainly has them, and uh, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween was just reprinted in September in a new, um, more affordable, nicer, small edition paperback by the publisher Reaction Books. Awesome. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible book. I mean, there are so many things we didn't go into that I didn't realize had any association with Halloween, but it's just an incredible holiday. It's 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 uh, and it's got such a, a weird, you know, no pun intended, but it's got such a cult following. Like some people, like this is their favorite holiday of the year. You know, I mean, it's it's really kind of come into its own in recent years, and I like that. This is it. It's a great start to the end of the year, which is just filled with incredible celebrations. And so I, I love that it's the first one on the list, really. Yeah, I mean, I think we now have a year-round Halloween culture. Um, (laughs) There are a lot of people, and I will certainly include myself among them, who um, sort of like the spirit of Halloween, and which is very creative and fun, and it's fun to pursue that all year round. Yeah, I I completely agree. Uh, Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show today. Sure thing. This was fun. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you love this show, please subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and now Spotify. We're on all the big platforms. And if you like the show and you want to subscribe and that's not enough, well, check out the Patreon feed, patreon.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn, where you can find all the bonus episodes, including the one for this one about the Dia de los Muertos, which is a great episode, incredible holiday. Uh, as I mentioned before, my second favorite holiday. And if you want to learn more about the show, fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go. You can find upcoming episodes. You can find the episode list. Follow the show on social media if you want. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can even subscribe to the newsletter and learn about upcoming episodes. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to check it out. Thank you for listening.